You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. As Dustin mentioned, my name is Greg Spence, and I'm an elder here at Iron City Church. I would love to begin by telling you a brief story about my precious wife. So a few years ago, Hannah, my wife, was leading a Bible study here in the community in Southside, and she had men and women from the neighborhood coming to her Bible study, but didn't have other men who were helping lead it. So she wrote an email to Pastor Dustin and said, Dustin, um, she was at Brook Hills at the time. I'm at Brook Hills, but live in Southside and would love if any men at Iron City who love Jesus and are interested in evangelism in the neighborhood, uh, if they would join me in this Bible study. So Dustin invited her to Caveat Coffee in Homewood where she was there, I was there, and a few other brothers were there. And when I saw Hannah, I knew she was beautiful. And when I heard her speak, I heard her godliness and her wisdom. And that is a day that I will never forget. Today, though, we are talking about a different kind of meeting. Today, we will be talking about where truth and love meet. Where truth and love meet. If you have your Bible, open it to the book of 2 John. And if you have not yet read the book of 2 John, you are uh, alongside many others. So if you turn to the back of your Bible, you'll see the book of Revelation. Before that is the book of Jude. Before that is the book of 3 John. Right before that is 2 John. It's only 13 verses. It's the book of the Bible with the least amount of verses and is the second shortest book of the Bible right after 3 John. So John wrote this letter. He wrote it under the title, The Elder. It's an assuming that whoever was receiving this letter knew that John himself was the elder. He's probably writing to a small church in Ephesus who knew who he was and probably sent members to him in order to share with John how they were doing. John then sends those members back to their home church with this letter of 2 John. And then they, when they received the letter, I'm sure that they welcomed it. They received it with joy, opened the letter, and read straight through it eagerly. So that's what I want to begin by doing together. I just want to read through this book. It will be 13 verses. So let's begin. The Elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. 
And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. My first question for you this evening is, where do truth and love meet? And my first answer is, is truth and love meet in the church of Christ. So I mentioned in my introduction that John was probably writing this letter to a small church. When you look at this letter, it may not seem quite like that because he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Scholars and commentators debate whether he was writing to a church or to a individual lady and her children and to this nuclear family. But most people lean toward it being toward a written to a local church. The reason why is because throughout both Testaments, the people of God are often referred to as a woman or a bride. So it would make complete sense for this lady, this elect lady to be a local church and her children to be the members of the church. So if this were Iron City Church, it would be to the elect lady and the members of Iron City Church. But it's not. It's a probably a small house church in Ephesus. So the elect lady is a local church and her children are the members. And in verse 13, we see a little bit of confirmation of this. Let's skip down a little bit to the end. The children of your elect sister greet you. So if this is a lady then we would know, need to know that her children are also serving in the Apostle John's church. So it seems more likely then that John would be writing from a church who is an elect lady with children to a church who's the sister church of this church with her church and her members. And that seems to make the most sense. And what we need to glean from that is that we are the bride of Christ Jesus is the Lord and we as a church are his lady. That is a strange truth, but that is a glorious truth. The reason why that is so glorious is because when you look at Ephesians chapter five, it tells us that husbands are to wash their wives with the word and they are to make them beautiful. They are to adorn them. And Christ loves his bride. And the fact that we are the pride of Christ is a glorious reality. So the fact that John introduces this saying the elder to the elect lady and her children already is glory. And this, lady, this letter only goes from glory to glory to glory because he does not just call her a lady. 
He calls her an elect lady. Elect is a churchy word or a Bible word. It just means chosen. So what he says here is not only are we as the church, the body of Christ and beloved and being washed by Christ in the word, but we are chosen in him. God has chosen you if you are in Christ from before the foundation of the world to look more like Jesus and to be redeemed by him. And not only has he chosen you as a believer, but he has chosen specifically here, this church in view. He chose them to be a church together. He chose them as a church. The implications of that are greater, that this is an elect lady. We can imply from that that we are also, as a church, Iron City Church, chosen by God. Meaning that if you are a member of Iron City Church, God is the one who put you here. And that means that we can, love, we can love one another, and we'll see that immediately in verse four, but we can love people outside of Iron City Church, and we should rejoice over good things God is doing in other churches. Yet in a unique way, when we are in the same local church, covenanted together as believers, we should be all the more intentional to love one another. And the beauty of that is that God has chosen who will be in what church at what time. So this letter starts, the elder to the elect lady and her children, but it doesn't stop there. He continues, whom I love in truth. John loves this church in truth. Not a vague love, not a love that doesn't really care about them, but just says, I love you guys, but a real love. We'll see that love add meat to the bones of what true love really means as we continue through this letter. Let's continue. Whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So notice here in this text that truth and love meet in the church of Christ because we are called to love one another in truth and do not miss his greeting. Sometimes we, when reading the Bible, skip too, too quickly over the greetings. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Brother and sister, election, truth, love, grace, mercy, peace, joy, and all spiritual blessings Christ has given to his church. So we can rejoice in grace, mercy, and peace, and the fact that it will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. So grace and truth start their meeting in the church of Christ. My second question is like my first. Where else do truth and love meet? My second answer Verses four through six. Truth and love meet in joyful obedience to Christ. Look at verse four. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Does this rejoicing greatly feel foreign to you? 
Do you find yourself inclined to rejoice at other churches and other believers thriving in their relationship with the Lord? Or does it seem foreign? For far too many of us, this kind of exceeding joy, this greatly rejoicing often can feel foreign. And sometimes even rejoicing in the Lord himself can feel foreign for us. But let me read to you a psalm if this feels foreign to you. This is the beginning of Psalm 149. It begins, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For, for, take note of that, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. That word for is really, really, really important. In this context, it means because or since. It would be similar to if um, in the context of Father's Day, if we said, Lord, thank you that dad teaches us the way of righteousness for you are the one who has enlarged his heart. Fathers, will your kids pray this way? May they pray this way and may us all, even if we are not physical fathers, may we be spiritual fathers and our children pray like this because the Lord has enlarged our heart. But the key there is that the word for in this context, in the context of Psalm 149, really means more of a because. So note then that we are glad in our maker and rejoice in our king because he takes pleasure in us. If we get that backwards and we try to strive for joy in the Lord before realizing that the Lord has pleasure in us, it's impossible to rejoice in the Lord. If you today need joy in the Lord and if you feel depressed or sad, and if you don't know what's going on and you don't feel your heart desiring to sing and desiring to dance and to write songs to the Lord, go and meditate on this verse. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. When we come to understand that our king takes pleasure in us, we begin to rejoice in him. And only then are we able to rejoice in our king. And only then will we rejoice when others are being obedient to our king as well. When we realize he's not only our king, but he's also their king, and we delight in him, we delight when others obey as well. Does it make sense that John... John, the same apostle that wrote the gospel of John, who throughout the whole gospel, when referring to himself, calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. Does it now make sense that that John, who knows that Jesus loves him, is able then to rejoice in others' obedience? It should. 
Because when we feel loved and when we know the love of the Lord, we are able to rejoice like John in verse four. He rejoiced greatly to find some of her children walking in the truth. Continue on to verse five. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Note that he here says this is not a new command. That's probably a reference back to John 13, where Jesus himself said, hey, I'm giving you a new command that you are to love one another. And by this, the whole world will know that you love one another. By this world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But how are we to love one another? John's command here is to love one another. How should we love one another? What does it mean to love one another? Well, the root of this love, John has already showed us. You may have noticed that I skipped by verse two. Go back and look. He begins saying that he loves this lady. Then the question why should naturally arise. Why does he love this lady? Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Brothers and sisters, when we have the truth of the gospel within us, we then love one another. And this isn't a dry love. This isn't a existential feeling of love. Paul says he looks at all the commands and he says that the core of them in Romans 13, the core of the commands is to love one another because love fulfills the law. John kind of does the opposite. He starts with love and says, to love one another, you should obey the commands of Christ. So Paul starts with the commands and works to the core. John starts with the core of love and builds out the commands. So brothers and sisters, the way that we can love one another is through obeying the commands of Christ. Love is like a fountain. It's like the fountain in Southside. Love is the fountain itself. Loving God is the fountain. When we love God, that is the base. And that love for God springs forth into love for others. And what happens to that water? It returns back to the fountain. So when we love God, that springs forth the love for others, which then causes more love for God, which goes back into loving others. And what John is saying here is that Christ, who is the embodiment of truth, who will be with us forever, is the pump that makes the fountain function. Without Jesus, there is no love for God. There is no love for neighbor. So if you wanna love your neighbor and love God in truth, we need Jesus. He is the pump that makes the fountain function. Look at verse six. Note that John expects further obedience based out of love because Christ will not fail. If love stems from Christ, if Christ is the, if he is the pump that makes the fountain function, then love will incur. Brothers and sisters, if you are claiming to be a Christian, 
and yet you do not love your brother, God's love cannot abide in you. If you say that you are following Jesus and you lack love, I would encourage you to go to the throne of grace and ask the Lord to heal your heart. Ask him to restore the joy of your salvation so that you love God and love others. If you love God, you will love others because Christ will not fail. Truth and love, they meet in joyful obedience to Christ when when we love our king and love one another because we know that our king delights in us. And brothers and sisters, his commands are not burdensome. This obedience is not something that is imposed on us, but it's something that we do from our love from the Lord. Obedience should be a delight for us in Christ. And when it's not, a heart check needs to happen. So question three is like question one and two. Where do truth and love meet? This answer comes from verses seven through 11. Truth and love meet in the person of Christ. Look at verse seven with me. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ. I remarked in Psalm 149 that the word for is really important. That did not change when we went from Psalm 149 now to verse seven of 2 John. That word for is really important. This seems like a stark contrast from the command, love one another, to watch out for false teachers. It seems like there's love here where we obey God and we love one another and we help one another. And then we watch out for false teachers. And we know that many deceivers are going to come. How does that four there work? What is the connection between verses one through six and verses seven through 11? John knows that if this church is going to love one another in truth, and if they're going to greatly rejoice in the commands of Christ, then they need to do so in the truth. And false teachers like wolves are coming to devour the sheep that believe in the truth. And thieves are going to come and try to steal away the true doctrines that this church holds. And deceivers are going to come and try to lie about who Jesus is and what he has done. This word, the deceiver, is hearkening back to Genesis 3, which we just had read for us. It's like when Jesus says that the Pharisees of his time were children of the devil, John's doing something similar here saying, these people, these false teachers, these wolves, these thieves, they're children of the deceiver and they are the antichrist, which literally here means against Christ. These people are sons of the deceiver and they are against Christ. The interesting thing here is in verse seven, it says that those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, there's some really interesting things and different people disagree as to exactly what these false teachers are preaching. 
But what we do know is their preaching somehow was misunderstanding the person of Christ. This did not stop after John wrote this letter. People still to this day are preaching false gospels. And at the core of most false gospels, there's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. And especially when it pertains to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word Trinity may seem far off to many, but I'm gonna try to bring it to where we can see it and inspect it and look at who God is. God is triune. That basically means a few different things put together. First is that there is only one God. We don't believe in multiple gods. We don't believe in a God over this area of the world, a God over the sea, a God over the land. There's only one God. The scripture says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one in his being and or essence. He is one in his being and essence. The second truth is that God exists in three persons. This is where it gets complicated. The Father is God. The Son is God. Or as verse 3 says, um, Jesus Christ, the Father, Son. So the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. God is three in persons. So God is one and God is three in persons. The third truth is that these three persons are equal but distinct. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. They oftentimes in scriptures will use distinct pronouns whenever they refer to one another. So Jesus said, but now I'm going to him, that's the father, it's a different person, but now I'm going to him who sent me. They'll sometimes have different, they'll have distinct roles in salvation. So in salvation, the father sends the son, the son purchases our salvation, the spirit regenerates those whom the father has chosen and those whom the Son has purchased. They have distinct actions sometimes in the scripture. So the Son of God was baptized. Jesus was baptized. The scriptures do not say that the Father or the Spirit was baptized. They have distinct actions or the Spirit of God came upon David. They sometimes have distinct locations. Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, this helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So that we see that the son and the spirit there have distinct locations. So from these three truths, we can boil down to one conclusion. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons, the father, the son, and the spirit. One theologian put it like this. Being, remember God is one in being. Being is what you are. Person is who you are. So this is not a contradiction. If I were to say to you, God is one in being and three in being, that would be a contradiction. Or if I was to say to you, God is one in person and three in person, that would be a contradiction. But no, God is one in a different way than he is three. He is one in being, 
three in person. So the heresy here in 2 John is that people are misunderstanding who Jesus is and what he is doing. And isn't that so much easier than everything that I just told you? Brothers and sisters, heresy and false teaching is sometimes easier than the truth. It's sometimes easier to say, okay, God is one and God is three and I don't get it. So I'm just gonna say he's one and kind of ignore the parts where he's three. Or I'm just gonna say that he's three gods and ignore the scriptures that clearly say he's one. These things are so much easier than when we hold, when we look at the scriptures as a diamond and turn it and look at all of its different facets and have to come to the conclusion that our God is triune. He is three in one. But we also noticed, notice a distinction here between 2 John and the teaching in 2 John and what Pastor Dustin has brought to us in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, those who are false teachers are false teachers, not primarily because what they are saying, even though what they're saying is wrong, but they're false teachers primarily because what they are doing does not accord with what they are saying. There are those who preach truth, yet their lives deny the very truth that they're preaching. And then there are those who may walk around with a smile and may seem to live very upright and godly lives. It may seem even very sincere, but what they're teaching is lies and they do not have God. John's command is in the next verse. He tells them to watch themselves Brothers and sisters, I know that the Trinity specifically is a hard thing to understand, but watch yourselves because most heresies then in John's day and now in our day stem from an errant errant view of the Trinity and the person and work of Jesus. Mormons, they believe that Jesus is a separate being from the Father. And if Jesus and the Father are not one being, how could Jesus pay for anyone's sins? Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a separate and lesser being than the Father. To quote Shailen on this, only God can take the wrath of God and survive. Muslims believe that Jesus is not God, but just a prophet and that he was not crucified. Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, our faith, and our preaching is in vain. Oneness Pentecostals proclaim that God operates in three different modes, but that he is not three different persons. And this is just a new spin on an ancient heresy, and it cannot save anyone. This may seem high and lofty and theological, but but what is at stake with this? Look down. At verse eight, he tells them, watch themselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son. Brothers and sisters, for the gospel, God is the reward. 
he is our reward and in him is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you want eternal joy in the presence of an almighty God, the most high? Do you want to see him face to face on his return, on Jesus' return? Our reward is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are his and he is ours. And there will be those who go out from us and they will believe different doctrines and they will make it clear that they were never really of us. They were not truly in Christ. And we will say with John, with tears in our eyes, that they do not have God. Look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. One of the ways in which the scripture works is that the Lord gives us narrative accounts to help us understand what was happening in the culture at the time so that when we get to the didactic parts of scripture, the teaching parts of scripture, the Lord will have so worked on our mind to better understand what was rightly being said. I say that because here, you may think if you read this, I'm never allowed to allow Mormons or allow Mormons, Muslims, Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm never allowed to bring anyone into my house or even say hello to them. But if you step back a little bit and you read the book of Acts, you see that people would travel from city to city and they would preach. And the preachers, who did they rely on to sustain them? They relied on the church. Hospitality in the New Testament does include having others to your house for meals but it's so much more than that. Hospitality is sometimes letting others live with you, sometimes being a voice for those without a voice, sometimes giving of yourself more than just your money, but giving your all. And here John says that if they are preaching a false gospel, don't receive them into your house. In other words, if they're traveling and preaching and want to stay with you, don't let them do it because they're preaching a false gospel that does not lead to joy forever. And do not give them any greeting. This greeting here is probably not a, hey, how you doing, Joe? Uh, You can still greet your uh, neighbors of a different religion, but it's more of a Christian greeting that affirms someone's brotherhood. Verse 11 clarifies, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It's similar to how when we send missionaries to the ends of the earth, when we pray for them and give to them as a church, we are sharing in their righteous works with false teachers. If you partner with them, you are sharing and partaking on yourself their wicked works. Brothers, that is a matter that we should handle with fear and trembling. A tangible note on this, be careful whom you're encouraging. Be careful who you call brother. Be careful who you affirm in the faith. Be careful what ministries you give to. Be careful what teachers you post on your Facebook. Be careful, watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. 
truth and love meet in the person of Christ, who is truly God, and God is love. Truth and love meet in the person of Christ, because Christ is truly God, and God is love. My last question is similar to my first three. Where do truth and love meet? In the coming of Christ. Truth and love meet in the coming of Christ. Look at these final two verses with me. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So here, John is very simply saying, hey guys, I could write a much longer letter, but instead of writing a letter, I wanna come see you so that we can have face to face fellowship. A brief aside on these verses. Be careful what you communicate via text or via phone call. Some things, normally weighty things, ought to be handled face to face. But even more than that, let's think about Jesus. John did not want to just write to them, but he wanted to see them for the sake of their joy. God sent prophets He sent apostles, he sent letters, he wrote on stone to his people. But that wasn't enough. The scripture says that Jesus came down to the earth, became a man. And for the what that was set before him? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus, for the joy set before him, became a man. And that's also for our joy. Our reward is the Lord and fellowship with him. And our reward would be null and void if we were still in our sins. But Christ came to the earth, lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. And he died on the cross fulfilling and absorbing the wrath of God that was due us in himself on the cross. But Christ being perfect, being a spotless lamb, did not remain dead. He got up from the grave after three days. He raised. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. So at his first coming, he endured the cross and despised the shame so that his joy and our joy may be complete to the glory of God. And then he rose to the right hand of the Father. But that's not it. He came and is coming again. And he will return in power and glory. And the scriptures say, that the night that Jesus died, the night before he, the night he was crucified, the night he was betrayed, his apostles were with him. 
and they took, and that Jesus took a cup. He said, this cup is my blood that's to be poured out for you. And this bread is to be broken for you. And that church, they, the apostles and Jesus, took the Lord's Supper together. And this church that John is writing to also would have taken the Lord's Supper together often. Brothers and sisters, it is for our joy that we get the opportunity to break bread and drink the cup together. But it is only for the joy of those who are turning from themselves and looking to Jesus in repentance and faith. Jesus endured the cross for the sake of those who trust him. Will you trust him because he took the cross for you? I'm gonna pray for our time at the Lord's Supper and then I'll have the, those serving communion come down. Lord, we pray that truth and love would characterize this church. Father, I pray we would not be a church with truth, but no love. And I pray that we would not be a church with love and not truth, Lord, but rather speaking the truth in love. I pray that we would be faithful to your son. Lord, would you teach us to be faithful? And would you make truth and love intersect in our hearts as we take the bread and the cup, Lord? Jesus is truth personified and he is love personified. Lord, so would we meditate on these truths and on the gospel that unites us with Christ as we partake, Lord? We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.